is a community that is both blessed by God and a blessing to fellow believers. My name is Ryan, and uh, I give you greetings from Reformed Presbyterian Fellowship. This is a, a church work uh, that's been established. Uh, I partner with uh, Pastor John Cady, uh, and so we bring you uh, greetings um, from that congregation. The rest of my family is not here because my wife is leading the uh, worship uh, uh, today. I enjoy studying uh, the history of modern China and modern uh, uh, Chinese thought, particularly around the time of the Taiping Uprising, uh, a, a formative event in uh, modern Chinese history that many people uh, uh, don't really think too much about, to the May 4th movement uh, all the way to 1911 and uh, 1949. I'm intrigued with the explosion uh, of the economy uh, after uh, in the late 1970s, um, and I'm really intrigued with massive expansion of Protestant Christianity um, uh, in the last few few decades. Now, what I'm weak, a little bit weak on is, and I'm trying to study it, uh, not just objectively, but also experientially, working with different churches, expat churches and uh, Chinese churches, is I want to get a sense of the, the culture of church uh, in China. That, I said, is, is a little bit weak. Now, what I do know is uh, something a little bit about uh, church culture in where I'm from, North America, uh, particularly a major metropolitan city, uh, Los Angeles. And there may be some parallels to Los Angeles, to uh, Shanghai as a uh, major metropolitan um, city, world city. Well, in the United States, again, where I'm from, uh, there, there's something about the culture of Christianity. I want, I want to zero in on the, the, the leadership, the culture of leadership in, um, among evangelicals, among uh, uh, Christians. With evangelical leadership, there's kind of a mixture. And what I mean by this is there's a mixture of how you're supposed to act, right? what you're supposed to look like. There's a mixture on the one hand of like the, the leadership uh, has to act like a corporate CEO, manager, uh, has to be tough and aggressive, make decisions. Now that's mixed with a kind of um, celebrity culture, celebrity stardom, right? You put those uh, two together and you have the image of a lot of uh, leaders, even popular evangelical leaders. Wow, this person has wonderful gifts. They could speak, they can act, they could do this, these marvelous uh, things. Now, 
I think this is part of a larger American culture that almost idolizes the, the go-it-alone individual, right? The, the cowboy. We're gonna, we're gonna do things regardless of what other people say, regardless of perhaps even what the law tells us to do, right? The, the individual, the rugged individual is loyal to a higher law, not to human law, right? Um, but I think a church organized in this way, or in chief church leadership, and we should say this is not all churches in North America, but a church that's run in this way runs contrary to scripture. It runs contrary to scripture. So to really understand the, the, the culture of the church, we need to get back to scripture. And that's what I wanna do in our final a passage, a final section of this letter uh, of Paul uh, to the church in Rome. What I'm going to do, uh, let's go ahead and read the passage, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with the end of Romans 15. That's not printed in your bulletin. Let me just read a few of the chapters kind of as a preview. I think these, the last part of Romans 15 runs nicely into Romans 16. So before we read the passage in your bulletin, let me read just this section. Paul has ended his, his ministry uh, in the east, and he's looking to go to, he's looking to go west. Okay? Um, he says, let's say, let, let's uh, begin uh, 23. Now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions in the east, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers, to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So now you could turn in your bulletin to page 12, and let's go ahead and read Romans chapter 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca, a shortened name for uh, Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. 
Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved um, Apennatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And my beloved Stachys, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the fam family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsmen, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus, or Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphania and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, Olympus. And all the saints who are with them greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal, I appeal to you, uh, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius or Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that has that was kept secret for, for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. I know what you're thinking because it, it goes through my head. What in the world can I get out of a passage like this from names I can hardly pronounce. Well, stick with me. There is a lot that we can uh, gather uh, from this. I remind my, my, uh, my kids and myself, really. Uh, we have a family devotions um, uh, pretty much every night. Maybe not Sunday night, but every night we have devotions. And we've been going through 1 uh, uh, Samuel, 1 Kings, the Chronicles. And especially when we get to Chronicles, there's so many different names. And we have to remind ourselves that when you when I get to those passages, I like to just like skip over it, right? Uh, so a passage like this, and plus it's at the end, so okay, we get the gist, let's move it on. But I think we need to remind ourselves that these names are part of the Word of God, right? 
So it is important for us to struggle uh, through them. And it's okay if, you, if people laugh at you as you mispronounce their names. My kids laugh at me all the time because of it. Paul has spent much of this letter discussing what all of humanity knows about God, how far short we have fallen because of our sin, the redemption that we received by faith alone in Christ alone, the cosmic nature of this redemption, and the Catholicity, that is the universality of the church, that is it applies to all different peoples, Jews and Gentiles. Um, and finally, as believers, or, or I should say how believers should maintain the bonds of unity as we saw two weeks ago, through following the example of Christ and taking joy in our place in uh, God's redemptive history. Paul ends his letter by continuing to talk about the unity, purpose, and benefit of the church. So this last portion of chapter 15 and all of 16 might read as a kind of, um, you know, here's my plan, here's my next step in, in ministry, you know, put it on your calendar, a final reminder, a long farewell, which would suggest Paul's great love uh, for these individuals. To me, this makes really Christianity, uh, it puts the boots on the ground, right? Because there's a, there's a lot of work that we do in, um, in, wor in worshiping God and uh, the work of the church. Um, but... If we were to skim this, this part, okay, this is nice, all these names I can't pronounce. If we were to skip these parts, uh, we don't take it seriously, we may miss what Paul's doing here. And here's what, um, here's what he's doing. Paul is presenting the culture of the church, or he's giving us a, uh, a, a church culture. Now, what's culture? Well, culture relates to our identity. It relates to the different ways in which we communicate who we are to the world. It begins with our language. It begins where, where we live, not just in terms of the region of the globe, but even our neighborhoods. It includes the things that we wear, what we like, okay? um, etc. These communicate to the world who we are, who you are. Right? The scriptures are always... Uh, careful to remind us, you know, remember who you are, right, because be, before a watching world. So if this passage is about Christian culture, the church culture, uh, what, do we, what do we learn? What, what is Paul communicating about the nature of the church? Well, here's what we learn, and this is the main idea for us today. The church is a community that is both, both blessed by God and a blessing to fellow believers. I want, that, I want you to understand that this passage, certainly written a long time ago, but I want to make it relevant to us today. We have this ongoing work. So what you have here at WSBC is that you have the, you have the body of Christ, particularly members here, a community that is both blessed by God and a blessing to fellow believers. That's going to be the, the, the focus of our exhortation today. And I want to highlight some of the, the, the features. There's, there's a number of features that I'd like to highlight. I'll number these as we go along. 
Uh, some I won't spend too much time on, others I'll spend a little bit more uh, time on them. Uh, to, to kind of open up this idea of community, being blessed, and to be a blessing to, uh, uh, to others. So the first thing I'd like to draw out is that the church is an ever-expanding network. Church is an ever-expanding network. Christians are not just involved in bringing the message of, God, of the gospel to bear on all of life, as Mark says. Right? We, we do this in our homes, our jobs, our relationships. But rather, let's, let's focus on um, the responsibility of Christians to establish congregations. Congregations with a mission to, this, to spread the gospel, the good news of salvation. If you're sent off into a part of the world where there are very few Christians, perhaps not at all, you are commissioned to then build a church. Before my family and I moved to China, as we were preparing in Los Angeles, one of the first things that I did was I made contact with Christians in, uh, in China. When we got here, the, the, the very next day we were here, uh, a local church who I'd been in contact with came over to our house, right? Oh, boy, was that, was that wonderful, right? And we still have a, a, a relationship with that uh, congregation. And we could certainly see, uh, we could see this in Paul's mind as he informs the Church of Rome of his intent to visit them. He's going to go to Jerusalem, uh, issues in Jerusalem that he needs to take care of, but my goal is to get to Spain. He knows that the church is expanding and that he will continue such work until God stops him. And we should have a similar mindset as well. The second thing that we see, the second thing is that the church provides material aid to churches within this network. Paul talks about giving aid to the saints, especially those in Jerusalem. Now, why Jerusalem? Well, perhaps it was a means of bringing home to the Gentile Christians their indebtedness to Jerusalem. Well, the gospel had spread first into the provinces of Judea and then to more distant territories. This is a bond of fellowship and brotherly love and the high point of Paul's eastern ministry. So it would have strengthened the fellowship between Jerusalem and the Gentile churches. Paul has spent a long time, and we've talked a lot about this, about the relationship between the Gentiles and the Jews, the weaker Christians and the stronger, or the more mature uh, Christians. So giving aid to the Jerusalem church may be a way of like uh, 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 strengthening those, those bonds. Third, I have to go fast because I have like 58 of these. I'm kidding, I don't have 58. Uh, just a few. Third, Christians in the church strive with one another through prayer. Strive with one another through prayer. He's, Paul in uh, verse, uh, chapter 15, verses 30 through 31, he actually encourages them to strive with Paul through prayer. That striving is, is an effort right, that we make. Now, why prayer? Well, 
There may be some delicate issues awaiting Paul in various churches and especially in Jerusalem. But he also prays to clear the path from the obstructions brought by unbelievers. In this case, Paul, deliver, uh, uh, Paul seeks deliverance from the unbelievers in Judea so that he can give proper service to Jerusalem. Right? He prays that these obstacles would be removed. Right? He's not necessarily calling down a judgment on unbelievers. He's just saying, let's, let's, let's clear a path so we can continue the, uh, continue the work that needs to be done. So we strive in prayer. That's another uh, a feature of our identity as the church. Four. This, is a, this one's a little bit longer. Four. Members of the church are greeters. Sorry, that's, that's kind of an ugly, <laughs> ugly way of saying it. Uh, we greet one another. Now, we can, we can talk about greeting anyone who comes uh, into the congregation. Um, those who are members, those who are not members, maybe even unbelievers, visitors, certainly we greet them. But the focus here is greeting one another, right? Greeting fellow believers. And we see this in uh, um, chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. Paul has talked about the various gifts within the church. He says it in 1 Corinthians 12. There's many gifts but one spirit, directly or indirectly related to the function and the offices within the church. And you may wonder, well, where, where's my gift? What can I give to this community? Well, perhaps you can begin with greeting fellow believers. And you all can do that. If you are a member, you are called to do this, even for those of you who are a little bit shy. You know, we don't have to rely on the sort of outgoing uh, extroverts in the uh, congregation, nor would I want to suggest that I want to change the character of people who are shy, <laughs> right? I don't want to make everybody uh, the same thing. Um, I've been in congregations, maybe you've experienced this as well, I've been to, a church, been to churches where they have, in part of the service, they have a time where they recognize the, the new people, right, the visitors. Um, what, I was at this one congregation and they made me and my wife stand up and they like clapped. Oh, I felt so awkward. <laughs> I, I didn't like that at all. But I had to, of course, step back and say, well, that was really kind. That was really, I felt, I did feel, you know, great. I feel awkward, but it was really great that they were willing to welcome me uh, into the congregation. I've been to uh, other congregations where I've, oh, this is really weird. I was in the worship and I even had lunch afterwards with the uh, congregation, not a single person said hello to me. I had a friend one time who says, oh yeah, we visited the same church. I says, he says, oh yeah, I went to that church and, and no one even shook my hand. No one even said hello. I'm never going there again. I says, okay, hold on. 
you know, let's back up a little bit and let's be a little bit more gracious. Maybe people are shy, right? <laughs> so no one said hello to me. I, I, I don't think that's uh, um, reason for me to make a judgment and, and denounce the church. Maybe it's just personalities. Okay, that's, that's different, right? Um, but there are ways that we can, um, uh, we can greet. Now, why do we greet one another? What does it accomplish? Well, one way uh, of greeting is to show hospitality, which is, a, which is a gift of the Spirit, hospitality, right? A welcoming into uh, this community. How do you feel when you're welcomed? Well, it connects us to one another. It gives a sense of belonging, uh, and it gives us a sense of comfort and peace. It brings that, that, that social harmony that I think deep down we... We crave. And these greetings are more than just hello, good morning, right? Uh, um, those are fine, you know, use those. But a Christian greeting means bestowing on one another the blessings of the Lord. This means that we acknowledge one another in the capacity of saints, that we know one another in Christ. So there's a sincerity as we extend this greeting of peace to one another and to one another's households. Now in verse 16, Paul actually encourages greetings in a physically intimate way. Greet one another with a holy kiss, also known as a, a, a kiss of peace. I had a theology professor uh, who had a, 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 a terrible joke uh, after every interpretation of Scripture, it seemed. The, you know, the kind of jokes that sort of make you roll your eyes. But this one joke is kind of funny, so I'm going to share it with you. What distinguishes a holy kiss from an unholy kiss? About three seconds. Okay, I'll let that, let that, <laughs> we'll, we'll let it, I saw some faces out there, you know, um, I'll let it sink in a little bit. Now, of course, this, uh, um, this is a um, Eurasian uh, uh, custom uh, that Paul is uh, familiar with. Uh, and then in some cases has been carried over into the contemporary era, but I don't think we need to be bound by it. Uh, in fact, one of the early church fathers, Justin Martyr, in his uh, essay, his first apology, uh, incorporated a holy kiss as part, of the, as part of the worship service. Can you imagine that, right? After prayer time, right, you look at your bulletin and you're like, oh, now it's kiss time. <laughs> um, Justin Martyr, he says, he says this, when we have ceased from our prayers, we greet one another with a kiss. Well, like I said, these can be culturally relative. At least I believe they can be culturally relative. We don't need to greet each other uh, with a kiss. Um, but I think we, we should think about demonstrating uh, care through proper physical action with others. And these may change over time. Some people like to hug. 
Some people like uh, uh, shaking hands, maybe a high five, a fist bump, uh, a hand on the shoulder. Sometimes when I'm interacting with someone, um, and it's usually a man, and that's, I think that's a very important to mention when, when, I, when I counsel men who are in a very difficult situation, maybe they lost a loved one, they lost a job, um, maybe they were struggling with a, with a sin in their life, Normally what I do is, is I, I sort of gently grab the back of their arm and try to communicate a physical touch in, in this way to let them know that I can hear what they're saying and I'm going to come alongside uh, of them. Now I say that men because nowadays culturally I think uh, uh, we, we have to be careful of how we interact with one another uh, physically. Women should probably uh, physically interact with women in a different way than men uh, uh, interact with women, right? Uh, just because of the society that we live in today. So my wife will do the the hugging. Um, uh, I don't I don't hug largely because I don't like to really hug. Um, <laughs> that's terrible. Um, I, I I I'll give you a secret too. I, I I shake hands and I'm okay with shaking hands, but I always I'm always worried about what the other person feels about it because my hands sweat. You know, so I'm like, ooh, I don't want to. I don't want you to get my. That's gross. So a fist pump is usually, you know, pr pretty good. But it was wonderful to see that, you know, everybody's greeting the the throngs as they came in. You know, there's handshaking and there's hugs, right? That's the kind of greeting that um, that we should be doing. Fifth, related to these greetings, we should note the diversity and the unity of the church. Now, who are these individuals that Paul is sending greetings to? And there's, there's two sets of people. He says, I'll send greetings to these individuals, and then I want to send you greeting from the people that, are, that I'm hanging out with, you know, right now or just or recently. Uh, Phoebe, as a deaconess, is mentioned first. Some were Paul's own converts. Some were Christians who risked their own lives. How they risked their lives, I'm intrigued. I don't necessarily know. Like Priscilla and Aquila. Those who shared imprisonment with Paul. Some were Christians that Paul worked with earlier who are now returning to Rome. There was an edict by Emperor Claudius that expelled the Jews. He passed away. And this may be the time where some of the Jews are coming back to Rome. And he's saying, hey, these guys are coming back to uh, uh, Rome, so make sure you greet them. Right? So this tells us that there's, in that instant, there's, there's, there's an ethnic uh, diversity in the church, Jews and Gentiles greeting one another. There's also socioeconomic diversity. Notice some of the people, or if you dig a little bit deeper, you'll know a little bit more about the people who uh, uh, Paul is listing. Tradespeople living very mobile lives in and out of the city. Uh, people just from the city, right? Urbanus, for instance. Some were associated with the imperial household, directly or indirectly, by family relations. So there's like nobility, there's workers, there's nobility. There's free men and women. There are servants and dependents, right? So this tells us that the church is not a body that demands 
uh, sameness culturally, socially, politically, right? But, but I, I personally have noticed that many churches sort of tacitly prioritize um, or they're not willing to sort of put aside their kind of middle class uh, status, right? Um, we, we can be friends if you're, if you're a lot like me politically, socioeconomically, uh, et cetera. But as we've talked about before, we got to get past those things and get to the unity uh, uh, in our allegiance with Christ. Now, Paul provides another list of individuals, verses 21 through 24. These are friends who are with him at the time of uh, his writing of this letter, or uh, someone else writing of the letter. These are individuals specifically engaged in the ministry of building his network. Um, in light of Paul's greetings above, this particular series of greetings, that is people who is ministering with him, he mentions Phoebe, mentions Timothy, you know, uh, on and on. This should tell us, th this particular series of greetings suggests that one does not have to be in formal ministry to carry out the responsibility of ministry, right? There's two sets of, of people. There's these people that I've been working with. There's coming, they're coming back to work. They're all, all walks of life. And then there's specifically people like Phoebe, a deaconess, or Timothy, a minister and colleague of uh, Paul, um, uh, or people like uh, Lucius. This is not Luke. Um, a Jewish Christian. Um, Jason. This is the Jason who is Paul's host on his first visit to Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica, Tertius, or Tertius, the writer of this letter. So Paul is a secretary, and, and he's dictating this. And this is, Paul does this regularly. Gaius, who extended the hospitality of his house to Paul and uh, many of his hearers when they were expelled from the synagogue in Acts chapter 18. Um, there's also Erastus, the city treasurer. This is a, a, a commissioner of public works, a responsible magistrate in the uh, city of Rome. Right? So whatever your position in life, if you're in formal ministry or, or not in formal ministry, you do have a responsibility to uh, minister. Six, what is... What is the church? The church is a, what kind of community is it? It's a vigilant community, a vigilant community. We can see this in, in verses, uh, in chapter 16, 17 through 20. Paul warns against those who would seek to divide. Maybe those from the outside, externally, but also he warns of internal division. So, so sort, of, sort of to watch yourself, check yourself. The difficulties are obstacles in the way. One such obstacle or hindrance has been mentioned in uh, chapter 14, and it may be included here. Dissensions are part of the works of the flesh, Galatians 5 says. Maintaining faith, and, and I, I've mentioned this before, and this is very important, that maintaining faithfulness in doctrine and life should not fall under dissensions. Sometimes we make this excuse. Sometimes we're not willing to sharply divide the word of truth 
because, oh, that's too divisive. Well, that's one, that's one area that I think we need to be sharp in, right? Um, there's only, there is literally one iota that separates orthodoxy from heresy when it comes to the being of God. And that's, for instance, that, that uh, element of doctrine is something that we need to maintain. No, the dissensions that Paul is talking about come from those who, whose ends are not to preserve, but to divide. These individuals serve their own appetites, literally their own bellies, as Philippians 3.19 says. Their God is their belly. Now, we need to develop discernment in how to identify those differences. Discord, let's remember, is the work of Satan. And these men were servants of Satan. But if the Roman Christians would keep them and their teaching at a distant God, who is a God of peace, not of discord, would give them victory over Satan and all his works. The church is the recipient of that peace. And this peace is a little bit odd. It's, it's maybe ironic, it's a little bit paradoxical, but it's a peace that crushes through the church. Satan will be crushed through this peace. Final, the final thing that we should take note of is that these features of church culture mean very little, if anything, without the blessing of God. We are a blessed community and a community that blesses. They mean little, if anything, without the blessing of God. So Paul ends with a doxology. A doxology is a song of praise in verses 25 through 27. And I want to highlight two features of this doxology. Number one, the mystery of God revealed, number one. And number two, the wisdom of God. Verse 25 speaks of a mystery. This mystery is the good news of the coming of Christ. It's not some early Gnostic heresy. Oh, we can't, we can't really speak of uh, God or the Spirit. We just sort of have to intuit it. We have to be, we have to be quiet and... and, and uh, enter into some sort of mystical uh, state. That's not the mystery that were these cultic mysteries that you would see in the New Testament uh, period. But the mystery is the good news of the coming of Christ, the one who brings eternal life. And clues of this reality of the mystery were given in the prophetic writings throughout the Old Testament. Paul has been building this case in previous chapters. And one important aspect of this, of this revealed mystery is that it is preached. It must be preached. Christ must be preached so that we may know the mystery. We must know that Christ is at the center of God's all-wise manifestation. That all nations might become obedient to the faith. That hope may come in the body of Christ. And that we should say, glory to God, only wise. Think about that for, for a moment. Here's a message 
that comes to us. But it doesn't just end with us clicking, checking a box, saying, okay, I've got my salvation, now I'll have eternal life. It's stepping back and seeing the salvation of God and saying, whoa, that's amazing. And, and that phrase, to God only wise, verse 27, wisdom denotes everything that has been made, that is, everything that's been made has a purpose, has a design, and has an aim. Not random things that are, that disconnected dispensations. Right? This is one long narrative that God is only wise means that with regard to all things, God has set before his mind a final purpose. And this end is the glory of his name, the revelation of his identity. We, we, we think a lot about um, what is the Bible all about. And some would say, well, the focus is redemption. Well, that's true. The focus is re redemption. But above that, really, the Bible is all about God revealing himself. And if we get that in our mind, it answers a lot of our questions about, for instance, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, why didn't God just correct it, right? That's, that's a big question that we, that we ask. God could have changed it. But if he did that, he wouldn't have had revealed himself. And God is bound, the glory of God is bound to revealing himself. God is bound to his own self-revelation. Think about that, right? If God is to be glorified, he wouldn't be glorified if he just corrected everything at the beginning and he started the clock over again. He must reveal everything about himself so far as the creatures that he's made can take in that revelation, which he can, which means he has to reveal his oneness, one God in three persons, and he does that over time. That's mysterious, but that's awe-inspiring, and it's wisdom. So God doesn't display his wisdom so that we can just pass by. He wants us to behold it. He wants to see and meditate on the purpose and aim of his work, his, what Scripture calls the poesis of his work including the revelation of himself through redemption. Oasis is where we get the word poetry. How blessed are we to be his poetry, whereby God reveals the centerpiece of that wisdom in Christ. There's always kind of an aesthetic reaction to anticipating mystery, a mystery that's finally revealed, like a gift you're going to get. Oh, what is it? I can't remember. And you open it up, and, whoosh, and there's a reaction. Unless it's socks, and it's, there's, there is a reaction, but it's not a, not a good one. And by aesthetic, I mean the immediate sort of sense reaction that we that we when, when we encounter something beautifully pleasing to us, right? When you see something beautiful, it's, it's pleasing to the senses. When we encounter something distorted, or what we might call ugly. In both cases, there's this sensory reaction. And we regularly in our lives seek um, uh, 
fittingness to the world, right? Sometimes things are out of order, right? Uh, something happens in our lives, and we're just we're just thrown off track. And and we like to have regularity. We like to have harmony. We like to have the aesthetic pleasure of that kind of beauty. Um, and and when I talk about aesthetics, I, I that's traditionally attached to notions of beauty. What's the point of beauty? This this question comes up in uh, my mind in, in in my household. I have a I have a uh, a number of uh, gifted artists in in my house. And one time, my 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 oldest son he says, "Why do we study art? Why do we study beauty?" And and I I would say beauty in all of its forms, literature, mathematics, philosophy, rhetoric, physics, everything. And just looking at your child, the beauty that's there. One reason is that uh, an experiential moment of beauty puts air into our lives. Gives us, it gives us life. The absence of beauty is, is like losing a part of our body or losing some oxygen, perhaps our soul, right? And the lesson you could take away from that is um, why, do we, why should we study art and beauty? Because it's healthy for us, right? Um, you know, when I, when I see a, a Botticelli's Primavera could take my breath away, at the same time, it's elevating. I see Manet's Olympia, beautifully put together. It, it puts air in my, puts air in my lungs. It gives me life. But how much more is this really interesting kind of um, story that God tells? These shadows that God gives in the Old Testament, and then all of a sudden it opens up with Jesus, Jesus Christ. How perfect that story is, and and how unique that story is. How the Savior of the world had to be both 100% man and 100% God. No other religion has that. And that all that you have to do, and this should give you that aesthetic spark that I'm talking about, all you have to do is rest and trust on his work alone for salvation. Right? Once that happens, you are declared right before God. And the Holy Spirit then moves you to be part of the work. And you can stand back and see the glory of God. What a, what a glorious conclusion, I think, to this letter. Redemption has come to the world. Christ's body is to expand to the farthest reaches of the globe. Members of this body are to care for one another emotionally, materially. They are to be unified in Christ, to be a blessing to one another as they are blessed by God through Christ and as they are a blessing to the world. And so let us meditate on the beauty of God's grand narrative, glorifying and enjoying Him forever. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we we thank you for your, your word. Lord, it, it may seem like a, a daunting task to establish a network of churches. It, it uh, may sometimes we feel like we have to get out of our comfort zone as we greet uh, one another. It's sometimes hard to study theology and make sure we have our doctrine right as we 
submit uh, to you, Lord, as we give our love to you. This may, these things may be difficult, but we can, relax, we, can, we can rest on your Holy Spirit to guide us in truth, to convict us of uh, sin, to glorify Christ in our lives. And the glorifying of Christ in the midst of your body, among your people, is to bring is to us our ultimate enjoyment. Lord, I pray that you would be with those who are unhappy, that they are looking for happiness. They're looking for the good. They're looking for the beautiful uh, in their lives. Convince them, Lord, that that beauty only comes from Christ. If there's anyone that may not know you, Lord, here today, I pray that you would redeem them. Help them to rest and trust in you alone for salvation, for your glory alone, and for their ultimate enjoyment. We thank you for WSBC and the faithfulness of the church. We pray that you would help them to maintain their witness uh, to the world, oh Lord God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.